As you're finding your place in the Scriptures, let me ask you a question as we get started. The question is, what feelings come to mind when you hear or you think about the word compromise? Or what if I were just saying compromise within the church? Do you tend to have a negative view towards compromise? Or do you have a positive view or feeling about compromise? Uh, the fact is, depending upon the circumstances, uh, the, the matter at hand, and the people that are involved, compromise can either be a good thing or a bad thing. There's such a, a thing as wise compromise versus worldly compromise. And I hope uh, to be able to make a distinction uh, between the two this morning. So as we begin, let me help you understand what wise compromise is and what it entails. Wise compromise means that you come to an agreement by mutual consent. Uh, You seek to come to an agreement or to, to find a common ground between two extremes. Wise compromise holds together friendships, marriages, relationships, and churches because wise compromise is willing to give up on personal preferences and personal desires for the sake of unity and peace. Now, this does not mean that we throw in the towel when it comes to fundamental doctrines and issues on morality. Yes, we're to hold firm, stand firmly resolved on issues of critical importance. You know, a primary emphasis on, on foundational truths. We stand firm on those. We don't compromise those. Truths that declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. There's no compromising on that factor, that truth at all. But on lesser truths or secondaries or, or, or third area of related issues, then we ought to be able to seek to find a compromise. Valuing friendships and relationships. Uh, wise compromise ultimately will bring together people. will hold together relationships. will will validate one another and promote unity within a church. Whereas worldly compromise, on the other hand, could be defined as shameful or a disreputable um, compromise. Worldly compromise is the type of compromise that, that backs away from moral principles, that, that seeks to uh, surrender truth to a lie. Worldly compromise ultimately divides people It breaks hearts and damages relationships. Like erosion, worldly compromise will slowly, silently, and very subtly will eat away at the truth. And it begins as we turn a deaf ear to the corruption and the falsehood that's all around us. Eventually, because we've turned a deaf ear to those lies, then we've put up with the sin for so long that we get used to seeing it all around us. Not only do we get used to seeing it, it comes to the point where we begin to expect and or even accept the sin that's around us. And from there, it isn't too long of a journey 
before we find ourselves embracing that sin in our own lives. I want you to know that biblical truth and morality cannot exist within a culture of worldly compromise. And this is ultimately the heart of this letter that we're going to read about this morning in Revelation chapter 2. Pergamum was in a, a very worldly and wicked city. And it found itself caught up in the swelling tide of false doctrine, doctrine and questionable morality. And so as we begin, let's look at chapter 2, verse number 12. And there we're going to find the characteristic of the one that sends this letter. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We first see this mentioned back in Revelation chapter 1. And so look over there. Look at chapter 1. We find it in verse number 16. There it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was was like the sun shining in full strength. So in chapter 1, this sword symbolized Jesus' power to, to judge and to conquer his enemies. Now here in chapter 2, this is a symbolic presentation of the Word of God's twofold ability to both separate and condemn. The Word of God has the ability to separate believers from the world, and it has the ability to condemn the world in its sin. So this two-edged sword is both the sword of salvation and the sword of death. And look at the one who holds that. It's uh, it's Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he says, I'm the one that holds this two-edged sword. And so this is the first letter that begins with almost a threatening tone to it. He's saying, like, you better pay attention because I'm not playing around. Listen to what I've got to say. And then he continues, look at, uh, we get to the compliment uh, to the recipients in verse number 13. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Two times Jesus mentions the the presence of Satan in a city where where the believers lived. And Satan has used his stronghold of that city to make life very miserable and unbearable for the believers. And one of the members of the church, a faithful witness by the name of Antipas, if you try to find out more about him in Scripture, you're not going to find anything. This is the only mention. This is what we know from him. But we know of a faithful witness named Antipas who, who, who made the great sacrifice of giving up his life for the cause and testimony of Jesus Christ. And so while other believers in other places might have buckled in the face of severe persecution and pressure, here Jesus compliments the believers who, according to the words of our Lord said, did not deny their faith in him. So he gives them a compliment. He's saying, yeah, you, you've held true to your faith in me. But the Christians at Pergamum, uh, while they've been true to them, to Christ in their faith to him, 
they had compromised their testimony in other ways, as we're going to see in these next two verses. So we see the characteristic of the one who writes and sends the letter. Uh, We see the compliment that he gives them, but now we're going to see the criticism that he holds against them in verses 14 and 15. Follow along. Verse 14 says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so here, uh, the church uh, here in Pergamum has the opposite problem of the church in Ephesus. Here, see, rather than, than testing and rejecting false teachers like the church in Ephesus did, here, the church of Pergamum, they uncritically accepted the teachings of others. They critically, uncritically accepted the teachings of, of Balaam and, and, and those of the Nicolaitans. And, and so, uh, what do we know uh, about these two groups or these two influences in teaching? We'll start with Balaam. Balaam, if you'll recall, is a very noteworthy Old Testament character. Balaam was an individual that was ready to obey God's command just as long as he could make a profit from it. As you're reading through the Bible in a systematic way, if you are, then ultimately you'll read about Balaam when you get to Numbers chapters uh, 22 through 25. As you read it, you'll you'll see that his story exposes the deception of maintaining an outward facade of spirituality while being inwardly corrupt to the core. Balaam was nothing less than a sorcerer who was hired to place curses on other people. You read in Numbers 22 through 24 uh, that the king at that time, King Balaam, hired uh, Balaam to place curses on the Israelites. And so Balaam, wanting to make a profit for his services, sought to place curses upon the Israelites. But, you know, thankfully, Balaam said, look, I can only say what God allows me to say. And each time, instead of bringing a curse to the people, God spoke a blessing to the people. And so Balaam said the blessing instead of the curse. And and so while that is good, he spoke the truth, his heart was disconnected from it. So you read three separate times, he seeks to try to bring about a curse on the people, but God would only give him a blessing instead of the curse. And so he leaves from that experience not receiving any compensation for his services because he didn't do what King Balak wanted him to do. And then thinking upon it a little bit more, then then Balaam had this idea, I couldn't speak the curses directly, ah, but I have an idea. I know how we can lead the people to go astray. So then he goes back and he sends a message to King Balak about how to lead the people into corruption so that ultimately he could get the money because that's all that he really cared about. And so while God prevented him from actually speaking the curses upon the nations, in fact, God turned those curses into blessings. So although he felt in his direct attempt to curse the Israelites, 
Later, he was successful in leading the people of God astray as they uh, sought to practice immorality and idolatry. By the time you get to Numbers chapter 25, it reveals that 24,000 people died because of their disobedient act of compromise. So how does all of this relate to the church at Pergamos? I would say that it doesn't take long for the practice of compromise to become the pattern of compromise. Not only did this church accept the teaching of Balaam, they also received uh, the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Do, do you remember them? Do you remember that name at least? Because we see them earlier in this chapter In fact, in the first letter to the church at Ephesus, they were praised because they rejected those teachings. Look look back up a few verses. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse number 6. There the Lord says, Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And and so, uh, the church at Ephesus, they understood how to love the sinner and reject the sin. But here in the church of of Pergamum, they they went a different route. They loved the sinner and accepted the sin among them. They, They compromised doctrine. They compromised morality. All for the sake of peace and acceptance. I want you to notice the strong words that our Lord has as a result of this practice. You get to the command that's found in verse number 16. Verse 16 says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The distinction between you and them is important here. Look again at what he says. He says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. To say these Balaam-like teachers and the Nicolaitans that were among them, although they have successfully infiltrated the church, they're not truly a part of the people of God. Well, as Antipas fell to the sword of Rome, the church at Pergamum would feel the sword of Jesus Christ. And he said, repent, because I'm going to come. Which means ultimately that present judgment comes to a church when it compromises the Word of God. I want you to think, just think of that sentence again. Present judgment comes to the church when it compromises the Word of God. And that as Jesus continues in, in His letter to the church, notice what He says in, in verse number 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's kind of break this down real quickly for you. Let's start with the the white stone. What what does the white stone represent? What does it mean? Well, 
in those days, a, a white stone was, was used for many different purposes. Sometimes a, a white stone would be used uh, by a judge. A judge would place a white stone into a, a vessel in order to declare a person on trial as innocent. They'd either place a white stone or a black stone. That's how they would render their verdict. But that white stone is also used as uh, kind of like as a ticket uh, to, gr- to gain admission to a great feast. And so both of those concepts would certainly apply here. Because as a believer, we've been acquitted and declared righteous uh, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of being acquitted and declared righteous, we also have been invited to partake of the great feast. So both of those hold true. However, I think the best understanding of what the white stone represents is in the understanding of how the ancient world would, would celebrate its victors in, in competitions. You have the games, and, and the way that they would reward the victor of the game is by uh, presenting them with a white stone, much like receiving a gold medal today. They would receive a white stone, and on the white stone, typically their name would be written upon it. So, so that white stone declared victory for that individual that they, they had won the race that they were in. But not only that, the white stone would then later be used by the victor to gain access into a great celebratory feast that would be held. That feast was open to all victors. So the victor would go, present their white stone, and be able to partake of all the blessings. I think that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is trying to depict here. Those that are faithful, that hold true to the very end, those that put their faith in Him, know that you have received the white stone. You've got victory. You're the victor. And you know what? You're the victor. There's a great feast that is being prepared for you so that you can partake in it. And so... Notice the, the threefold blessing that Jesus declares. He has a promise that's threefold. That they would receive divine food. That's the hidden manna. They would receive special favor as re- represented by that white stone. But not only that, they also got a new character which is depicted by the new name. I don't know how to explain it other than, you know, someone said, well, what, what name's written on it? Like, read the verse. A new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So ask me that question again in heaven, and I'll tell you what my stone said. I can't wait to figure that out. A new name. That's going to make sense to me. Given to me by our Lord. And so what does this have to do with any of us, especially today in in our world? I'd say it's because our culture currently demands equal rights for any and everything. Demands that we accept and embrace concepts such as alternative lifestyles. We live within a culture that seeks to redefine or even reject traditional values. It winks at sin while glorifying rebellion. But the attitude of Christ 
towards worldly compromise should cause us to sit up and take notice. To pay very careful attention to the danger that exists within embracing worldly compromise. And and so with that in mind, before I close, I want to give you this morning four principles regarding worldly compromise. Four principles or, or four truths that are connected to compromise that is bad, that, that we should not embrace and that we should not practice. So here are those four. I'll go through these quick. First of all, compromise, compromise never occurs quickly. It never occurs quickly. Ships that drift off course usually do so accidentally. It's not because someone intentionally uh, takes the wheel and jerks at port or starboard side. Typically, it's because the winds or the waves or the invisible currents move the ship in, in the wrong direction. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 1, presents a, a solution to the subtle drift that could incur in our lives. There it says, Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay, pay close attention to what you're hearing, what you're receiving. You better pay, not only pay attention to it, you better be in your word to validate whether or not what's spoken from this pulpit is actual truth. Just because it's declared doesn't mean it's right. Know the word of God. Study the word of God. And so like ancient sailors who would fix their eyes upon the North Star, so we too must fix our eyes upon the unchanging Word of God. So so compromise, it never occurs quickly. And then number two, compromise always lowers the original standard. Compromise often begins when we seek to replace God's perfect standard of truth with our man-made standard of truth or what's acceptable. I'll share a couple of verses. First one comes from Psalm 127. Verse number 3. God's perfect standard of truth declares that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. That's God's perfect standard of truth. Children are a gift. Not only that, in Psalm chapter 139, it declares, for, your, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's God's perfect standard of truth. But now, we live in a culture and a time where abortion replaces God's perfect standard of truth with the pro-choice position that devalues the sanctity of life. And how much longer are we going to sit quietly by as this onslaught of murder continues to happen in our nation? I'll be honest, like most pastors at least most pastors that I know, won't go there. They won't talk about this issue so as not to offend or to hurt or to upset or to, to frustrate. I want you to know I'll go there. 
because I love you. And we need to... We need to be loving, compassionate. We, we need to be respectful in having these conversations. But there are definitely, these are conversations that must be had in our world today. Scripture tells us that worldly compromise is never worth it. Look at what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope. We don't have to waver. We don't have to apologize. We don't have to do any of that. Let's just hold true to the perfect standard that God set for us. Then in Jude, it says in verse number 3 that we should contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to, to the saints. So here's what I'm saying, that we must be committed that we would never try to add our own truths into this book, nor should we seek to subtract God's truth from this book. Hey, listen, what's true is true. Whether you like it, whether I like it, it matters not. Truth doesn't need our approval. It's true because God's Word declares it to be true. And so, compromise never occurs quickly. Compromise always lowers the original standard. And then thirdly, compromise is seldom offensive. Think about it. People who compromise regularly tend to be excellent people pleasers. But too often I see believers who will walk around eggshells around other believers so as not to upset them. Oh, and then they'll also bend over backwards around non-believers so as not to offend anyone. I think that's what's wrong with us today. Ephesians chapter 4 declares in verses 14 and 15, it says, Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of His body, the church. I love this. That, that we won't be tossed and blown about with every new wind of teaching. That we won't be influenced when people try to trick us with clever lies that sound so much like the truth. That we should be so in love and in tune with the Word of God that as people are speaking and declaring what they say is truth, we should be able to run that through the filter and say, uh-uh. That's not what that book says at all. But we have to be diligent. We have to be students of His Word. And as we're students of His Word and we seek to share the truth, understand that we're to share the truth, but we're to share the truth in love. But we're still supposed to share the truth. There's just the right way to go about doing that. So this compromise, worldly compromise, never occurs quickly always lowers the original standard, is seldom offensive. Oh, I need one more verse. I'm sorry, I almost skipped this one. Look at John chapter 15. This should help bring clarity to us all. 
If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Why are we trying to be so friendly and so accepting in a world, in a culture that rejects Jesus Christ? To be rejected by them is is what we should expect from them. It doesn't mean that we become arrogant, self-righteous individuals that are always looking to pick a fight so we can be rejected and say, I win. No. In love, we go, we talk, and we share God's perfect standard of truth. We share the way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. We share the truth about what it means to submit and surrender our lives to Him. We share the truths with other believers who are walking in sin, and we know that they're walking in sin. It's evident the fruit that they're bearing gives witness to the sin that they're embracing in their life. And so we love them enough to say, hey, we got to talk. But we do it all in love. Don't expect to be loved by the general public when you, when you refuse to give in to worldly compromise. And then the fourth truth is that compromise is often the first step towards total disobedience. It's often that first step. King David, unfortunately for him, he serves as a perfect example for us to see. King David and his sin of adultery and murder didn't happen because of one bad choice or one weak moment. No, it, it began much early through a series of compromises in his own life. I'm going to show you, show you that real quick. So it began in Second Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1. Look at the screen. Look at this verse. In Second Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1, it says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, you should pay attention to that. So when the kings typically are going out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. So where was the king? He wasn't out at war. He was staying at home. So he sent someone. And it says they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So David, right here in verse number 1, compromises his responsibility as king. Instead of going out to war with his people, he compromised that responsibility, sent other people, and he stayed back at the house. Then you get to verse number 2. Verse number 2 says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, so after he took a nap while his people were fighting, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Hmm. So he already compromised his responsibility as king. Now he compromises what he allows himself to look upon or to focus upon. Look, if he was doing the right thing, uh, he would have been at war with his people. But even staying back, if he was doing the right thing, then after he took his little nap and he went about his walk, oh, he might have noticed something over there that was doing something, like maybe taking a bath, but that is about as far as it should go. He didn't have to stare and then figure out it was a woman. He didn't have to focus intently and then to figure out, oh, that is a beautiful woman. No, 
He already compromised his responsibility as king. Now he's compromising what he's allowing himself to look upon and to focus upon. But it doesn't stop there. You get to verse 3 and it says that he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. So he compromised his responsibilities as a king. He compromised what he allowed himself to see. And here he compromised how he uses his servants and his power. It's just a series of compromises that are growing and growing in severity until ultimately it ends in murder and the total collapse of integrity. With that in mind, Let me ask you something. What small area of compromise are you involved in today? Know that unless you repent, that small area of compromise most likely is going to grow in severity. So is it the the little lie that you've told your parents or the lie that you've told your spouse, your employer, or your employee? Is it a little exaggeration you're telling other people about your circumstance, about yourself, about whatever? Is, the, is it the, the harmless gossip that you engage in here or there? Is your little lie the secret looks at pornography on your cell phone or your computer when no one else is aware of it? What's the small area of compromise that you're involved with today? And then think back upon these four principles of compromise. Compromise never occurs quickly. It always lowers the original standard. Seldom is it offensive And it is often the first step towards total disobedience. As you think about all that, then ask yourself, what is keeping you from listening, hearing, and heeding the words of our Lord and repenting, confessing it, confessing that sin, making a commitment to not only confess from it, but to turn away from it and to pursue God's perfect standard of truth. Oh, how I love looking at these letters. And, uh, what, what I find encouraging and discouraging at the same time, I hope this makes sense, is how each of these letters helps me in my own life. Brings awareness of things that needs to be corrected in me brings attention to the areas in my life that I have neglected, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and calls me to a greater commitment to loving God, loving His Word, loving His people, and loving every opportunity that He blesses me with to share the truth about who He is and what He has to offer. In this time uh, of this service, I'm going to pray for us real quickly. We'll move into a brief time of invitation I want you to know that I'm going to be down here at the front. Joel's going to be down here at the front with me. We're down here for you. Maybe you want to come 
and you want somebody to pray with you or for you. Maybe you just want to come and kneel at the front and have others come and surround you in prayer. Listen, whatever you need to do in this moment to leave here in a right relationship with God, I encourage you to take the opportunity as you have it to do whatever's necessary so that we can all leave here right with our Father. So let's pray. Father, oh, Father, how we love you. How we thank you for the privilege of gathering here, to worshiping you. And God, help us to continue to learn week in and week out ways in which we need to correct ourselves and improve ourselves so that we can honor you in every aspect of our lives. And God, I know there's not a single perfect person in this room. We've all got problems. We all have pain. We've all got issues, Father. Help us to set aside that that self-righteous arrogance, Father. And help us to humbly pursue your will for our lives. In this time of invitation, Father, I know there's decisions that need to be made, sins that need to be confessed. And God, I just pray that your Spirit would move among us, guiding and convicting us, and that we'd have the courage to do whatever's necessary in this time to honor and please you. Father, this time is for you. May you be glorified in what you see in us. It's in Christ's name I pray.